Ladies and gentlemen, and everything in between, and whatever doesn't even fall on that spectrum, welcome to the Meta Podcast. I'm Layman Pascal, the people's champion, here with Bruce Alderman, who didn't even know we needed nicknames. And if you haven't been living under a rock of naive materialism for the last two years, you'll know that this sub-series of the Integral Stage is devoted to podcasting podcasters, broadcasting broadcasters, co-hosting co-hosts, and basically exploring people who are trying to bring forward higher, deeper, healthier, and more multidimensional perspectives through online media. Here to talk about his podcast work, his developmental transformation protocols, and the evolutionary need for difficult conversations is my favorite diaphanous goat whisperer and a guy who's probably our target audience, Screen TG himself, Ryan Nakati. Hi, Ryan. Hey, guys. Thank, thanks for having me. This you is uh, say a few words, Bruce? This is Delilah Rose. Mm. Delilah, you want to say Hello, hi? Delilah Rose. Hey, Delilah. I couldn't bring... Uh, Layman or Bruce in here because they're too big for me to put the diaper on them at this point. So we have Delilah. It almost looks like she's got sunglasses tipped up on her forehead. Yeah, sunglasses. <laughs> yes, I just oh. want to say welcome to Ryan. This is kind of long overdue. I've been happy to be a, a guest on your program before and really enjoyed our conversations. And I know that you've been developing some really great stuff in terms of dialogical tools and now enlisting Layman and me in uh, the criteria for being a meta-ideological Chad, which is just dope. So <laughs> can't wait to hear all about it. And, and uh, I'm also in the middle of doing some other kind of work. So I'll be in and out and most of the uh, ship will be under uh, Sir Layman's control. Okay. First thing is, am I pronouncing it right? Is it Nakade? Yes. Perfect. Okay, good. Because i that's how I'm naturally inclined to say it. But I also want to say that I love the idea of saying it as Nakade, because that sounds like a super cool American action hero. It's what I've heard my whole life. So I'm used fired to from point. the CIA for a crime he didn't commit, hiding out as a consultant and goat farmer. If you're in epistemological trouble and if no one else can help and if you can find him, maybe you can hire Nakade. Dun, 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 dun. Something like that. Thursdays at nine. <laughs> <laughs> i love it i like ryan uh, naked <laughs> I, I do go by that one too yeah whatever you fancy um why don't you give us a quick overview of the podcast projects you've been involved in and or are getting involved in and then we'll circle back to them after we've covered some more general philosophical concepts sure yeah so the first podcast project that was a part of was uh, the Integral Left uh, project with Jeremy Johnson, and then the podcast with, with was with Jeremy and our other friend Matt Hudkins. And I started that one um, because I I kind of felt this this need for a higher, more nuanced, more complex discourse in the meta space around specifically leftist uh, topics, and kind of wanted to bring the kind of polarized political discourse uh, to a higher level in doing so. I think Jeremy was more interested in kind of a classical kind of Marxist socialist materialist perspective and analysis that he felt was getting kind of left out in the integral discourse, which focused more on left-hand quadrant consciousness-oriented uh, perspectives and didn't really include a thorough materialist analysis. I was more interested in steel manning or what I've called titanium manning, more the identity politics stuff and moving the conversation forward with more complex forms of thinking and sense-making around identity and, you know, identity-related culture war conflicts that have been very polarizing, but I've, I saw that same kind of polarization seep into uh, a lot of integral and metamodern and 
meta spaces. And I kind of wanted to try to help move that conversation forward somehow. So I felt a need to kind of highlight that explicitly and represent that left perspective. Uh, and for various reasons, that project has kind of come to an end. I think Jeremy got busy with other things. And I personally felt fulfilled in saying my piece and putting our thoughts out there. And so now I can kind of move forward to not necessarily post left, I like your term limit meta progressive, but but even a more holistic, comprehensive form of politics and dialogue around politics uh, that kind of transcends that classic left right binary. Okay, well, as far as I can tell from reading your work, you're really into men, steel, straw, titanium, polarity, Vajra, doesn't matter to you, you like all the men you can get. So let's try to figure out a bit of who these guys are. I think most people are colloquially aware of the straw man complaint, which is the idea that instead of actually criticizing someone's positions, you make a grotesquely simplified scarecrow version, which doesn't represent them. Then you attack that and pat yourself on the back for refuting their argument. And since the rise of the intellectual dark web, there's been a lot of people discussing the steel man, which is uh, trying to present a strong, adequate, just version of someone else's argument to represent from yourself, almost as if you were doing therapeutic dialogue, their argument in the strongest form that you can plausibly present. So this is where Agent Nicade enters the story. Tell us what the Titanium Man is. Sure, sure. So I like to contrast the Titanium Man with the Steel Man, in that my understanding of the Steel Man is that it is the, it, the most lucid uh, most clear articulation or rearticulation of someone's argument or perspective, but still in the same way that the person articulated it. So if I rearticulated your perspective from a steel man, uh, you would say, yes, that's that's what I said. You would approve my paraphrase of your, your argument, right? So the titanium man is going one step beyond the steel man, where we're rearticulating someone's argument in an even more complex, more holistic, more uh, multi-dimensional form that includes more variables and context. So it's a rearticulation of the base perspective or essence of what someone was saying, but at a higher level that basically, it's kind of like, I give the example from, uh, you know, Hansi in the Listening Society, where he takes the same like liberal perspective, conservative perspective, feminist perspective, environmentalist perspective, and rearticulates it at various uh, MHC stages. Right. And so I see a lot of I see a lot of people, including someone like you, Layman and Bruce, doing this naturally as a kind of maybe perhaps it's it's this kind of part of the uh, machinery or mechanics of integrative styles of thinking where we can take ideas that are um, could be polarizing or unhelpful instead of just steel manning them by titanium manning them. We're able to still trend, you know, include the essence of or, or whatever is valuable or truthful about that perspective, but you're rearticulating it in a higher way so that any problematic elements are shaved off, but also gives you a new kind of spin or a new take on what that idea was. So I like to think of it as an ultimate exercise in mimetic creativity where we can look past conventional meanings of the term that we may be stuck on from how it's being used in the mainstream culture and repurpose these terms to have uh, create new insights and provide other kinds of uh, perspectives from old ideas, right, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think this notion of the titanium man really, uh, it clarifies something that is implicit in developmental and integrative metaspaces which is the idea that we should be able to take any position and speak to what it would be like at another level. And it also articulates something that's um, personally uh, deep in my own character, which is I don't like to give up the battlefield before the battle. Like I don't like to 
let someone else define a word and then decide that they're idiots, right? I'm like, no, I get to define the word in a way that's acceptable to me. It's not like everybody I talked to about God was a moron, so there's no God. I'm like, no, no, I'll tell you what God means. <laughs> it has to match my understanding. So I love that. Um, but what is then the polarity man? And what does the polarity man bring in that isn't already covered by the titanium man? So I think of the titanium man as kind of growing up and the polarity man as a form of cleaning up. It's the most holistic form of cleaning up I can conceive of. So, you know, polarity management by uh, Barry Johnson, where you take any uh, polarity that's a neutral polarity. So both sides of the pole are equally valuable, like yin and yang, masculine, feminine, market, state, private, public, whatever. So it's the polarity is not a hierarchical polarity, like healthy, sick, good versus bad, good versus evil. That kind of, right? It's a neutral polarity. The polarity is always going to be there. So you can't get away from it. You can't have a one-off solution. So you have to e eternally oscillate between both sides of the polarity. Now, each side of the polarity has kind of a virtuous side and a shadow side, right? So let's, what's, what's a good example? So let's say unity versus diversity, right? So if we focus on the positives of diversity, uh, you, you know, you can have a lot of creativity, you can have an array of different perspectives, right? Uh, it can be very kind of enriching to be part of a diverse community, diverse ecosystems and cultures can be more resilient, right? Unlike kind of monocropping or monocultures. But the downside of diversity is it can become very divisive, it can be very polarizing, there may be no common ground, things may become destabilized, right? Then if you look at the unity side of the polarity, the benefits could be Oh, yeah, it's great. You know, we all have things in common. There's a lot of solidarity, right? There's a lot of group coherence and social cohesion. But the downsides are just you're missing out on different perspectives, right? You kind of get uh, sucked into one reality tunnel without knowing the other options out there, right? You may prematurely converge on a certain solution without exploring other potentials. And so the idea is you can't get away from this polarity of unity and diversity. So let's oscillate between them to minimize the upsides and get away from the downsides. And any argument is what represents one side of this polarity. So the polarity man is to map the entire polarity space of all four quadrants, upsides, downsides of each polarity, to get the full picture uh, and to flesh out what that larger polarity space looks like around any one perspective. Yeah, I really appreciate your emphasis on that. And we talked about that before in some of our um, dialogues. You didn't mention other podcasts that you've done, I think. One, you had something on Crossfire or something where you, I don't remember the exact name, but you were trying to uh, mediate uh, difficult conversations at one point. And then you also had talking with Teal. Um, and one of the early experiments that we did on the integral stage was trying a, a polarity dialogue. I also used that polarity management tool in some of my classes and teach that to students. And we tried just with Layman and I just playing both sides of an argument before we converge together towards, you know, some unitive insights out of, out of that dance. So uh, that's something that we started with and we kind of abandoned as we went along. So I'm really interested in the unfolding talk today, just to hear more about what you're doing and to think about more of, of how we could represent that here in, in what we're doing on the integral stage. Yeah, that, that's that's great, Bruce. Um, I also forgot about the Talking with Teal podcast. I started that uh, in 2019 when I was young, naive and ignorant. That was before I knew that an integral Facebook or online community even existed. 
And basically that was kind of my idea of my kind of a proto integral stage vision. So once I found out about the integral stage project, I didn't need to do that anymore because you were doing exactly what I was doing, but with a lot more scope and reach, right? And it was basically, hey, there are a lot of cool people in the integral community who are not represented on a lot of mainstream integral platforms like integral life. Maybe I can interview them and try to capture what they're doing and what kind of unique projects and work they're doing and then kind of broadcast that out to the public. And so I had I had talked to you on that, Bruce, and that was a great conversation where I got to hear about some of your philosophy and background and also about the Erpies uh, group, which I didn't know about at the time. And so part of that little community that I had formed uh, from people I interviewed on the Talking Teal podcast, we had other kind of just non-recorded meetups. And one of the meetups that we had was what I called Integral Crossfire, which was partly inspired by, uh, you know, like Buddhist monks have like a debate practice as part of their dharma practice, right? There's a kind of spiritual value in debating someone and having a dialectical exchange where perspectives can be clarified. And you maybe you can even reach a kind of integrative synthesis through that exchange. And so I wanted to use disagreement about very polarizing cultural and political topics as a way to deliberately foster and cultivate higher level developmental thinking and as a kind of shadow work to get to get over our own allergies and and look at our biases and blind spots. So it was a conscious attempt to create a deliberately developmental debate format. <clears throat> and I tried different techniques. It didn't last too long because the community had some issues and we ended up kind of going our separate ways, ironically. <clears throat> but um, it was an interesting experiment and I'm, I've thought a little bit more about how to, how to further flesh that practice out and try to make it a thing. Um, so that A, the people participating in the debate can benefit and grow and understand things from different angles, but B, everyone watching it too can also benefit from the exchange and kind of open up their minds to uh, new perspectives and vantage points. Yeah, I'd like to get into some more of those, uh, the potential mechanics of how to do that well, and maybe what we've all been learning about that, because I think we've demonstrated pretty well that you can have a very wide range of one-on-one -on -one discussions you can have some occasional group discussions. You can have people record their own positions and group a bunch of those position recordings together. But the, the back and forth, it's been really sporadic. Like Bruce says, we tried a few, right? I've moderated a few debates. You've moderated a few debates. We've all sort of tried to get something going along these lines. And we should be really trying to converge around what we've seen working and what kind of format we think could actually sustain this as a viable ongoing kind of, uh, you know, meta perspectival Thunderdome or whatever. <laughs> but let's come back to that. Let's first finish off this men thing by telling us what the Vajra man is. Sure. So the name is a little goofy. Uh, I'm open to changing the name, but I think so. Again, I think Titania man is growing up. Polarity man is cleaning up. Vajra man is waking up. So it's, I was partly inspired by the Vajraman idea from your article, Layman, on the uh, restoration project, where I think you were talking about articulating kind of like left policy positions, but ensconcing them or packaging them with a conservative ethos and flavor, right? So the Vajraman is about A, deliberately altering the aesthetic uh, architecture and symbolic packaging of a certain idea so that it changes our association with it right? And it changes everyone else's association, emotional reaction to the idea. Um, and, I, and it's kind of a deliberate way of tinkering, not necessarily with the content of an argument, but simply its symbolic infrastructure, so to speak. It also includes 
re-articulating the same idea from a different state of consciousness. So I, you know, like if a friend texts you on the phone and they're frustrated or angry, you can kind of sense it through the text message, right? Like, oh, this person's kind of pissed off at me. And someone could say the same thing, like, hey, do you want to talk about this later? But if they don't say it from a state of being emotionally pissed off, you can feel that they're not pissed off. So the, our emotional states tend to transmit themselves through words and memes and ideas as we share them. And uh, I was influenced by talking to Tada Hozumi about this, that a lot of memes that are currently circulating on Twitter and that are definitely driving the culture war are kind of produced from very angry, traumatized, amygdala hijacked states of consciousness. And then that inflames everyone and then we create more ideas and more memes and more gifts to fight that and it creates more you know, inflammatory, toxic polarization and trauma. And so how can we, instead of uh, sponsoring an idea from a state of anger and outrage, can we develop ideas from a, I don't know, causal, non-dual, higher, more sublime state of consciousness and then try to transmit the essence of that consciousness through these ideas and circulate those to heal and uplift people instead of traumatize and inflame them. So I'm not very good at, I'm not a states of consciousness guy. Right? I don't do psychedelics or a lot of meditation or spiritual practice or that kind of thing. But uh, for people who do like you, right? I, I talked in the article about like meditating deeply on an idea, right? Making it into a kind of haiku, uh, tripping on drugs while you're thinking about something and then re-articulating it from that higher state of consciousness and see if that is able to kind of transmit itself directly into people, right? Bypassing the left brain and just going right into people's emotional, somatic, visceral experience. Yeah, that speaks, that speaks to me really strongly. Um, talking about the psychedelics, you make me think of a time when I, I met Timothy Leary once when I was a kid and I was able to talk to him for a little while. And he, what he called the first commandment of communication was, uh, if thou writest straight, edit stoned, if thou writest stoned, edit straight. And so like generalizing that, that's cross-check it with another state of consciousness, whatever that means to you in any given moment. And that's a big part of my own spiritual practice is trying to uh, do cross-training cross between the states. <laughs> and there's a lot of people out there who are a little bit autistic in a sense where they this is the policy, this is the message, this is what we have to get done. And they don't really understand that the reason people are disagreeing with them in many cases has nothing to do with the proposal and everything to do with the mood or state that it's coming from. So it seems to me that uh, a lot of what you're doing is sort of um, capturing the thought patterns of second tier thinkers and deploying them as actionable strategies for traditional modern and postmodern people to use as as if they were tactical, which will then like nudge them into this other state of consciousness. Is that's what you see what yourself doing? That was the best description of what I'm doing that I've ever heard. So basically one of my personal frustrations with some of the integral and metamodern and you know all of these meta spaces and theories is that there's a lot of focus on the content or the products of this deeper machinery of integrative thinking of second tier thinking and we debate about the you know the content we debate about you know does this quadrant go here or is this model better than this one but i'm more interested in drilling down to the fundamental 
actual mechanics or machinery of how people even come up with these ideas in the first place. I think one of, one of the things I've been thinking about, in some ways this is a Gebserian perspective where a, a new structure of consciousness emerges and then eventually goes into a kind of decline. And I think part of that decline, and it makes me think of especially of kind of postmodernism, is that the initial postmodern thinkers, right, Foucault, Derrida, Baudrillard, Lyotard, uh, Deleuze, I think they had a very, they were very brilliant, very highly developed people cognitively and had very critical uh, meta perspectives on culture and systems and how power dynamics work and so forth, right? There's a kind of <clears throat> contextual, critical contextual analysis and where we fit into that. And I think what's happened now with the kind of, you know, mean green meme or whatever you want to call it, right? That kind of eventual and inevitable decline comes from fixating on the products of the thinking, but we don't really get to how the, the, the underlying style of thinking that led to those conclusions or content in the first place. So I'm really interested in really drilling down to how to think about things and then teaching them as a kind of packageable technique that people can use to repurpose and redesign and re-envision any idea, meme, or perspective uh, and bring it to a higher level. And I, I was watching your talk with, um, Brent, was his name Brandon Graham Dempsey or something? Uh, yeah, Brandon Graham Dempsey? Yeah, Metamodern Spirituality. And he asked you a question that I really liked his framing of like, do we it was something like, do we tra transform the old or make a new paradigm, right? So a lot of these are kind of like, well, they're kind of both. I'm kind of emphasizing transforming current ideas and re-envisioning them to create a new paradigm, right? So it is, it is exactly that of drilling down to how we got to the conclusion and then just emphasizing that process and seeing what we can come up with as a community. You, you seem to be very instinctively focused on overcoming apparent disagreements and figuring out how to present material to people in a way that um, won't be excessively disturbing to them. <laughs> and my question is this, would you agree that you are perhaps too agreeable? Totally agree. <laughs> <laughs> um, you were talking about like, you know, uh, 2019, you mentioned. So that's not very long ago. You've been moving through these things very quickly. And so I've got to assume that a lot of this stuff is built into your character. And I'm curious a little bit about your background and your history. Like, how, how old were you when you realized you could go into a problematic field of ideas or disagreements where people were clashing in their perspectives and you could accept that, work with that, transform that a little? How long has how long have you known that about yourself? <laughs> I think the first memory was about four years old in the playground uh, during a dispute. Um, I think I've always kind of had that compulsion for kind of peace building and mediation. I never really had the skills until 2019 where I actually took a training and became a mediator uh, and kind of learned how to, how to think in that way and how to best approach conflict. Yeah, I, I, I think that for me, that my real interest in that is that conflict, especially, you know, cultural war conflicts, conflicts at scale are really opportunities for transformation, right? So there is a kind of field of mediation called transformative mediation that emphasizes the interaction pattern between the parties in conflict and creating a transformative experience for everyone involved, <clears throat> which even takes precedence over the agreement or, or conclusion that the parties reach with each other, right? The transformative process is emphasized over coming to an agreement. Um, and that's something I'm really interested in, right? Is how do we leverage all of the conflicts we're seeing now as to basically launch us towards a more integrative metamodern future? Uh, and so 
that's kind of also what I've been thinking about along the lines of integrative anti-fragility, where given that conflict, especially mimetic types of conflict are inevitable, and that you're always, there's always going to be critics and people who take issue with your ideas and stances. How do we respond to those and engage with those in a way that actually makes the whole, the entire neospheric ecosystem of ideas stronger and more developed and more nuanced and more refined instead of polarizing the collective, even if we personally gain from that polarization, right? Like I think Trump was kind of politically anti-fragile, but he fragilized the larger collective, uh, you know, state of democracy by polarizing it. And so how do we make, how do we have a win-win-win where we can respond to conflict or what Daniel Schmachtenberger says, uh, leverage micro rivalry into macro symbiosis. And so that's kind of my crusade in life, so to speak, at least for the last three years. There's a there's a like a it seems to me a spectrum of integral anti-fragility, because on, on the one end, there's the idea of just being a really nice, well-balanced person who doesn't, uh, you know, who understands a lot of perspectives, doesn't have a grudge against anybody and maybe can do a really graceful judo move with every piece of perspective they're confronted with. On the other hand, there's people are definitely going to attack you. Right. There's problems coming. There's conflicts. And can you stand in that place of conflict? Can you can you own the shadow of what you're saying? Are you willing to be singled out? Are you willing to be upsetting? Things like that. So, like, how do you see those two skill sets complementing each other going forward? They are the the non problematic person who sort of sidesteps or enfolds every conflict, but also the need to. Uh, sacrificially put yourself in the place of conflict, right? Well, as that was one of the things Trump did very well, was he just sort of showed up and owned the uncomfortable space. I think about this every day uh, because I, I'm developing programs in Portland, which I've talked to you, I've talked to both of you about, uh, about kind of my vision of, you know, anti-racism or social justice or kind of an integral reincarnation of these ideas using the titanium man and polarity man of Audrey man that kind of thing so like for you know i'm teaching a, a workshop on equity and some for some uh, mediation institutions and i'm calling it complexity right it's a portmanteau of equity and complexity really exploring the whole complexity of the human being and being mindful not to reduce people just to their social identity or positionality right uh, i had my whole diaphanous anti-racism article where i'm trying to kind of emphasize the paradoxical nature of, of race and making sure that we don't re-reify racial categories when we're trying to liberate ourselves from them. Uh, so I, I, I've already been attacked a lot by, by other people um, in, 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 in my community for kind of messing with uh, popular notions of what, you know, green forms of activism. So I think a lot about how do I start the right fights, right? How do I start fights that are going to lead to some kind of greater gain for the collective? How do I start a fight and engage with the, di the dialogical back and forth in such a way where I'm learning something, they're learning something, and everyone watching the conflict is learning something and changing their thinking about it. And so my strategy is basically find the right fights to pick, start them, and invite people to a dialogue where it can be as public as possible. And, and that's where I try to use my mediation skills in real time uh, to really try to understand what they're saying, steel man what they're saying, and affirm all of the valuable, important things that they're offering, while off also then offering my own critique or perspective and hopefully arriving at a higher level synthesis where I think a lot of confusions can be clarified and people can recontextualize their thinking around these very polarizing topics. 
so it's always something it's something that i'm i'm figuring out every day i think you have i've seen the way both of you interact with people on facebook and i think you two do a wonderful job of embodying this balance and so uh it's something i i i, think, I don't have a prescriptive formula but certainly something i'm trying to develop sounds like you're talking about cultural mixed martial arts <laughs> I just like to say that this also is really leading up to your meta ideological chat. If you can say anything about that, yeah, it's it's uh, kind of a joke. I mean, there's a reason why in in that article I wrote on Medium on this subject, I put a picture of Goku of from Dragon Ball and ended it with a picture of one of my goats. But it's basically uh, a play on you know Hansi Freinot's five things that make you meta modern or whatever that article is called, which. No offense, I thought was a little lame, like a little, like a little banal, and so I kind of wanted to spice it up with some juicy terms like you know Chad, <laughs> and and kind of had a have a more playful and ironic element to it. So I I have been working on this project with uh, Nate Kaufman, who you know layman from our Reconstitution project, and we're interested in articulating uh, a meta political vision that really emphasizes a few things, but one of them is kind of seeing politics and integral political practice as an analog to integral post-metaphysical spirituality, where instead of kind of, and I'm, I would like to hear both of your thoughts on kind of what integral post-metaphysical metaphysical spirituality is, so we can really kind of use that as, a, as an analog for what I'm trying to develop with Nate. But the idea is basically, instead of uh, having a meta perspective and cycling through various ontological and metaphysical understandings to kind of rock reality in its wholeness, we're going to do the same thing with political ideologies, right? We can, you know, whatever, Marxism, anarchism, libertarianism, classical liberalism, individualism, collectivism, whatever it is, we can kind of titanium man and refine these various ideological perspectives, find nuggets of truth and ideas that are worth expanding, and then kind of cycle through them so we, our sense-making of whatever's happening politically or our understanding of society at large is really come at from all of these different angles, right? So we can understand what all of these, all the critiques that are being made from these perspectives, all of the affirmative visions that these perspectives are offering. And in doing so, arriving at a more whole metasynthesis of all these perspectives to come up with these kind of omni-win uh, solutions that can be valued by, if not, you know, hopefully as many people as possible uh, from every, you know, mimetic tribe or political camp. Yeah, terrific. Yeah, I think uh, probably either of us, both of us would love to talk to you about that, because I think the there's just a few core ideas around integral post-metaphysical spirituality that make a lot of sense, right? One of the simplest one is, hey, you can do the practices and they cause the effects. It doesn't have to be associated with any particular belief system or cosmology. And then that's integral when you start thinking about their developmental phases or developmental layers of cosmologies. And these things, whatever they are, should be operative at all those levels, right? And spirituality and religion isn't just about mythic membership cosmologies. It should be a set of functional practices that can operate in any of those. And if it's a set of functional practices that can sustain this whole uh, wheel of perspectives, but also one that leans into the kind of very nuanced uh, advanced postmodern critique from which people might want to say that they're post-metaphysical, where we can say like, look, we're not only beyond the uh, traditional dogmatic metaphysics of the mythic cultures, we've also challenged the implicit metaphysical constructs of modernity. 
And now we're in a place where we have to treat the world as, as if agnosticism and indeterminacy and multi-perspectivalism is built into the fabric, into the ontology of being. So that's the more advanced part. <laughs> but the simplest part is just that, yeah, you can do this and it works and it causes these effects and there's these different perspectives. And that doesn't mean you've bought into any belief system necessarily. Uh, you and I were talking a little bit about the possibility of a deck of cards because I'd gotten this idea from so Christopher Alexander and some of the people interested in his work on pattern and architecture and things like that have made this deck of cards where they say, hey, if this problem arises, <laughs> then this is usually what solves it. You know, and so you could have a like a tarot deck of situations. You go, here's the Marxist, here's the capitalist, here's the second tier, here's the amber, right? If you run into this problem, this is usually the solution. Flip the card over so that you could at least, there's no way that it's going to be comprehensive. But we could at least start listing a couple of dozen things that we frequently run into or frequently need to include and what usually happens when we include those things and how we include them well. That would be a really useful tool going forward, I think. Yeah, absolutely. I'd love to work on that project. You know, I think part of it, too, is that every perspective, every stage, right, every value set, every ideology is going to look at integral or metamodern ideas from their own vantage point and to a degree kind of distort them and therefore have an attack or a critique of what we're up to. And so one example that's just on, been on my mind lately because it kind of makes me smile is I was watching um, John Verveke talk to Jonathan Pajot and they were having a little debate because Pajot accused Verveke of kind of like an eclecticism and Verbeke was saying, this is not an eclecticism. I'm interested in synoptic integration, which is to me, Verbeke is a very integral thinker when it comes to kind of upper left quadrant, you know, cognitive science and spiritual ideas. And Pajot was just like, nah, I don't know, dude. Like, I feel like you're digging too many, you know, you're digging too many holes, right, to try to find the water uh, when you, you should really just go deeper in one path because you need a kind of one narrative to really make sense of your reality and go deep into that spiritually. And I think what Verveke was advocating for is more similarly to your you know, surplus integration model. And so that's a kind of interesting situation where someone sees an integration attempt as a kind of mere eclecticism or spiritual dilutism. So how do we respond to that, right? In, in the kind of religious spiritual sphere, right? How do we respond to that in a way where maybe someone like Peugeot could understand what synoptic integration means and everyone else watching who is kind of from Peugeot's camp may be able to say, oh, that's actually kind of interesting and different from what I associated, what you're up to with um, through my own lens, which where I kind of misinterpret that as mere eclecticism. So yeah, creating a, a kind of a, another another common attack too is like, you're doing the both sidesism. The one that people come at me with, which is probably a fair criticism is kind of the meta detachment, right? So it's like, wait, wait, Ryan, aren't you going to get mad about this? Like, where's, where's the anger? This is a legitimate problem. This is a legitimate injustice. Why aren't you kind of joining me in moral outrage solidarity? And it's just like, well, I don't know. Like, I, it's not really who I am. I, I kind of tend to talk in a detached meta way where I see perspectives and ideologies as just perspectives and mental models and heuristics. And so I don't totally buy into those things as if that is reality because the map is not the territory, but people have gotten frustrated with me about with that kind of attitude, right? So I'm still, I'm, I'm looking for skillful responses uh, to these, to these and hopefully engendering a more complex, comprehensive form of dialogue in the process. Yeah, it's a very interesting process because you, 
you have to be able to capitalize on whatever value that person is centering in themselves. So it'd be like, yeah, I'm just not that kind of guy. I'm looking at it from this. You're like, that's perfectly reasonable, but there's also got to be some kind of bridge where you can say to them, Hey, I understand you are morally focused and emotionally focused on this. And let me explain to you why from a moral and emotional point of view, I should be doing exactly this. And maybe you should be joining me. (laughs) Um, Let's, um, Let's dig down into this diaphanous anti-racism thing a little bit more, because I think that's really pertinent to a lot of discussions. It's really something that a lot of people are passionate about at this moment of history. Uh, it seems like you're saying we don't want to get lost in the very categories that we're trying to include and transcend. But what does that really look like? Because right now, the, the conversation, the instinctive conversation in, in the big countries seems to be between people who still want a liberal colorblind universal humanitarian society. Uh, And so they don't want to go forward with these racial distinction categories. They think that's regressive. On the other hand, there's a lot of people who say, no, no, that's the very thing we have to integrate and take into account. And you are sabotaging the improvement of general human well-being by emphasizing this premature universalism. But you've got to sort of take on how to be how to be transparent to the social categories that we nonetheless have to own about ourselves. Yeah, yeah, really, really well said. And it's interesting because the whole diaphanous anti-racism thing, I have to, there, there are several people who have been very influential in my thinking about that, who I'd like to thank publicly, right? One was I had a few great talks with Brent Cooper, and he was, the whole idea of re-reifying categories, racial categories or identity categories, inadvertently when trying to advocate for those groups liberation yeah. is a problem and so he he said that we need to see race as being paradoxical in some ways from buddhist perspective it's kind of like a form emptiness uh interconnection right where race is both real and not real in a way it's very real in terms of the subjective lived experience of people who've experienced racialization or race-based traumas or oppressions, but it's also in some sense a social category and a complete fiction that's been reified in our culture over the course of history and institutionally, right? So it is paradoxical, and, and what Brent said was it can only be solved, it has to be solved paradoxically, unless lest we re-entrench those categories uh, even further. And I was also, of course, influenced by Jeremy's work from Gebser and this idea of diaphaneity or transparency, uh, where you're able to get from Gebser's perspective, right, diaphaneity is kind of the hallmark of the integral structure. You're able to kind of see through all of the previous structures of consciousness into this kind of diaphanous wholeness, right? And it's different from a meta perspective because you're not jumping out of the context and surveying all the options from a 40,000 foot perspective. You're embodied in it and you're seeing through everything that came before you into this kind of unfolding wholeness. And so I said, oh, that, that sounds pretty juicy and spiritual and sweet. Let's apply that to racism, right? Uh, so the idea of the diaphanous anti-racism was how can we have a form of social justice advocacy that emphasizes this seeing through and rendering diaphanous these categories that have been crystallized through history and in our systems and see deeper layers in, of the human being through them. And the very notion of seeing through something is kind of a both and in the sense that you're seeing the thing, but you're seeing the kind of contextual lived experience of someone's racial and ethnic background. But you're also seeing through that into deeper, more complex, more subtle layers of the human being. And actually, I've kind of gotten away from this approach 
thought many times about deleting that Medium article because when I went to a lot of activist groups in Portland, no one knew what the hell I was talking about. What the hell is diaphanous? What the hell is reification, right? Well, people had no idea what that meant. So I switched to more of the complexity approach where my critique of kind of unhealthy woke culture is um, a form of identity reductionism where the full complexity of the human being is reduced to one social identity or one variable. And instead, to really flesh out the divisual, right, the infinitely divisible human entity, and all of our social positionalities and systemic entanglement dynamics that have constructed our emergent sense of self, and to really unpack that in its most holistic form of complexity, and really get a deep sense of who we are as this beautiful, mysterious, numinous, conscious entity. And that includes social categories, right? That includes our the socialization effects from our uh, social identities, from race, from gender, from sexuality, and it can be helpful and illuminating to critically reflect on that. But also including other dimensions, right? What are your core values, right? What is your spiritual life like? You know, what is your, who are you as a person? So we're not reducing you crudely to the to just one social identity variable or, or uh, category right so to so that's kind of what i've been exploring i have various um worksheets and diagrams and group, group practices to explore that with people and uh, i'm going to lead these trainings over the summer and i'll uh, let you know how it goes terrific yeah there's a sort of uh i mean i think one of the key things we're starting to see about integral politics or meta progressive politics or whatever you want to call it is it requires an expanded framing of intersectionality in order to accommodate the the multivariate nature of what it is to be a human being and you know when you mentioned brent and the re-reifying of the categories i thought immediately of a part of a trevor noah stand-up comedy routine that i'd seen where he said he was walking in new york with a group of his white friends somebody yelled out hey monkey and and it's white friend leans over and goes i'm sorry you had to hear that and he's thinking why did you assume it was about me <laughs> Right. You're you're paradoxically carrying forward the category assumption. <laughs> so on the one hand, we have to be more aware of the complex, plural, flexible interaction between these different categories. But we equally have to be more aware of are these the categories and where did we get them? I heard you use the term Procrustean categories, which I think is very apt. <laughs> right, right. Exactly. And, you know, you know. The word Procrustean is from the Greek myth of the bed of Procrustes, where this dude, Mr. Procrustes, or whatever his name was, uh, travelers would come and stay at his house, and he had a bed that they would sleep on. If the bed was too, uh, if they were too uh, short for the bed, he would stretch out their legs, and if they were too tall for it, he would chop off some of your limbs so that you'd fit, right? So it's like you have this very rigid schema uh, that which you're consult you're kind of crudely consolidating the complexity of reality and, and overfitting it into this one tiny little box right so how can we expand those notions and i think it is kind of paradoxical because in some sense you you can't get away from categories including uh, kind of conservatives who have been kind of implicitly getting sucked into the kind of identity politics right i was looking at candace owens uh book blackout on amazon and i was reading some of the amazon reviews and this one, this one lady was praising the book and she was saying how she's a black woman conservative and how it's so important for black conservatives to read this. And then she put a picture of herself showing, proving that she was a black woman conservative, right? So it's like, yeah, you can't really get away from that because the kind of intersection of someone's social identity and in this case, their political ideology does create for kind of a salient mix that adds to what someone's saying. 
So just own it and own it well. Own it with the complexity it deserves. Don't reduce people to one or two variables and, and try to... See, my problem with the whole, um, let's just see people as human beings and not and not as social, and it's like, well, what the hell is a human being? Right? What is the kind of implicit ontology behind that statement? So I want to kind of unearth and co-create this notion of the divisual as a human being, which includes all of these factors, but it's held in a very complex, integrated, mandalic embrace, and not just over-fixating on someone's social identity. Yeah, I think challenging the category assumptions is absolutely essential to getting a new and more enriched understanding of what a human being is. And this is another area where the political project parallels the integral post-metaphysical spirituality project. Because I think one of the things from an integral point of view that we run into that's problematic in religious studies is we use the religion categories that we inherit from traditionalism and modernity just takes them over, right? So we go like, oh, there's Christianity and there's Buddhism. And we have to be able to say, is there? Because um, here's, here's Meister Eckhart, he's a Christian saint. But goddamn, he sounds like a Zen monk. And then here's a sect of Buddhists who believe that there was an enlightened savior who, if you call upon him by name, when you die, you go to a perfect paradise where you can achieve your samadhi much more quickly. And you're like, so wait, which one's the Christian? Which one's the Buddhist in this case? Right. Maybe those aren't the categories. <laughs> we might have to rethink what we're describing in the same sense that um, whales used to be fish and now they're mammals because we took a different kind of look at what they were. We're like, oh, stop thinking about their shape and where they live. Start thinking about their internal functions. If, oh, when we look at their internal functions, they belong with cows and cats and not with fish. That's interesting. So I think we have to be ready to do these category reshufflings based on what aspects of beings that we are inspecting. Beautifully said. I love the whale fish example. Uh, I'm, I'm going to use that from now on. But that's kind of what the Titania man and all these other mans are for, right? They're kind of a systematic way of reevaluating the categories and critically challenging our functional fixedness, right, on an ideological or ideational level, right? We, we, we get locked into, oh, you know, whale means uh, fish. And, and unless we take a critical look at it and say, are we, are we sure we want to categorize it as a fish? Then we're going to be left with that notion subconsciously forever and just be running that operating system without kind of upgrading it consciously. And so, yeah, that's, that's part of what I'm, I, you know, it's funny because the diaphanous anti-racism thing was the first article that I wrote. It was actually on Thanksgiving and it kind of just spontaneously poured out of me onto paper. And I wrote a few more. I wrote one on Bildung and depolarization in America, right? And I was like, well, what am I doing here? And, I, and then that's when I realized the Titanium Man and Polarity Man stuff and the, and the Vajra Man. Uh, so I basically just looked at what I was writing and kind of distilled the, the, me the mechanics of my thinking behind it and then tried to share that and teach that so other people can come up with interesting new repurposed ideas. In preparing for this discussion, I kept coming across something in my own mind, which was, I don't know, it's maybe a different kind of man. Maybe it's covered by the ones you're talking about, but maybe it isn't and you could help me name it because it has to do with making something more complicated, right? I... Um, I had a discussion with John Verveke about politics and he said, you know, we got to be a little bit cautious here because I have this position at the university I have to protect. And I said, we're going to talk about it at such a nuanced level. No one's even going to know what we're saying. So nobody's going to get upset. They will just, they won't even be following. And I, I made me think of a famous Milton Erickson, who's sort of the father of uh, American hypnotherapy. 
there's a famous event where a guy who compulsively carried a cross around and no other form of therapy would work came to Milton and Milton said, yeah, you're right. You've got to carry that cross around. But my research says it doesn't actually work unless you carry two crosses around. So now this guy's got to start carrying a second cross with him all the time. And this actually breaks open his psyche because it's, he, it's something he could accept, but it's also something that made it a lot more complicated. Right. And so this idea of, of the form of man that makes something almost too complicated to fit in one of the prior categories is intriguing to me. Like what would be an example? Or like if I were to say, now this is <laughs> risky. All right. You know what always bothered me about the word nigger? It's the er, it's the suffix. <laughs> Sounds like toaster, lover, explorer, as if it was a grammatical agent accomplishing an action. But what's the action? What is nigging and what does it mean to nig? You know, no one ever explained that to me when I was a kid. And that's probably why I've uh, had a great deal of stuntedness in my racial sensitivity to the point where I'm borderline tolerable. So like, what do you, what does your brain do to that paragraph? You know, like what kind of a, what kind of a thing is that? <laughs> uh, it's called the cancel net. No, um, <laughs> it's called the Bruce is going to edit this and delete that. No, <laughs> I mean, I would consider that a form of the titanium man because because there is a kind of critical reevaluation of of that idea, and you're kind of the complicating factor, right? The complexifying dynamic that is kind of a key tenet of the titanium man. I wouldn't apply the titanium man probably to that word, but <laughs> we can call that the layman Pascal man. Okay, the Pascal man. Yeah, because the way I see it is there might be ways, right? And it's only certain kinds of contexts in which a person will be able to do this where you could bring forth something that's right at the edge of what's tolerable. And usually because it's so intolerable, it fits into a certain slot for us. But if you were to add a couple of more things to it, put a few branches on this tree, it, it'd be much harder for it to get into that slot because it's getting grabbed by these additional complications you put on top of it. It's no longer, even if someone finds it upsetting, it's no longer clear exactly what kind of upset it is because it has these tentacles. Exactly, exactly. I think when you when you um, just present something in in a context with more variables, right, or, or combining with other contexts, it takes the edge off of that idea, right? And so part of what I try to promote in my some of my work in dialogue and depolarization is using more complex, more nuanced understandings of ideas to um, overcome that binary polarization that we get locked into. Yeah, lo love uh, Bruce's comment there. The how do, I don't know how to say that word. I, I see it all the time. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> it, it it is it is, I, and that is to me again one of the the main aspects of the titanium. Like, let's take another controversial example, cancel worthy example that I've been thinking about too. It's the whole race and IQ debate, right? And what what I don't see people saying for on on any sides of this debate is how valuable is IQ anyway. Right, like we're, that's only one form of intelligence. And if we understood that in, in the context of the entire array of human intelligences in a kind of Howard Gardner integral way, well, so what if your IQ may be lower because you may have very high EQ, you might have very high kinesthetic intelligence, you might have very high artistic intelligence. And so we have to critically challenge our overvaluing of just IQ and its implication, for example, in education, so children can develop most holistically, right? And and an IQ is not even the same as you know um, developmental complexity, right? So so just adding more into the equation helps to kind of re 
contextualize the problem space while also supplementing it with more variables that takes the edge off of the really divisive part of it. Yeah, I think this is in many respects the fundamental thing that a post-progressive, meta-progressive integral thing can bring in because it accepts the pluralistic critique, but it takes it another step. Like it's not just um, uh, how are we relating to the different sides or agents or groups in this thing. It's like, what are we also presuming when we look at that battlefield? Right. And I think we see this in politics as well. Like we're like, oh, there's too much partisanship. And we're not necessarily looking at the things that always get bipartisan support that are, are the deep part of the system of which the contradiction between the big groups that we're looking at is possibly even a self-protective disguise for that deeper assumption. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, I, and a big part of my hope with both techniques like the man's and also having you know spaces in the meta community to really discuss these ideas is to bring an idea that's currently articulated at a lower, more unnuanced, hyperpolarizing level, but to address the topic at a higher level. And I think one of the things that we've done is we've to a degree committed the stage code fallacy, right? Kind of like your, what you were mentioning earlier about the Buddhists and the Christians and people conflating religious ideology with the level of complexity that it's articulated at and really consciously separating that so that we can talk about content that's articulated in, in a very not complex, not developmentally sophisticated way at a higher level. Because if we don't do that, in my opinion, it's very easy for that just to become a shadow. And so whenever that those issues do come up, we're left talking about it at the kind of popular, not complex level. So how do we consciously bring those up and reinfold them in a much more integrative space so it's less polarizing. Yeah, I'm glad you brought shadow in there because that's a really a personal issue for me, which is if I deal with someone and I'm I think, oh, I'm I'm seeing a bigger picture than you. <laughs> I'm seeing more nuances. Uh, but when I'm doing that, I'm not taking into account the validity of what they're saying. And I'm I only take that validity into account if I can make a valid argument for it from the perspective that I'm seeing from, right? So I have to be able to use whatever uh, uh, mechanism of understanding that I have to explain at that level of sophistication what's valid about this argument. And if I don't do that, there, the, the validity is not really let into what I'm saying. I might nominally say that I've included it, but I haven't actually let that energy in because I haven't figured out a way to affirm it and therefore it operates for me as if it were shadow material. It's an energy and it's out there and I didn't really let it in. Beautiful, beautiful, yeah. And that's that's a big part of um, what I'm hoping to promote too is really critically looking at these things that we're nominally supposed to transcend and include and question how and at what level are we supposed to include this thing? So I, like David Fuller always says like how much of green should we like integrate or consider seriously? And my my answer is not only how much or, or what content specifically, but at what level is it being integrated and considered at? And I remember Layman on one of the podcasts, you were talking about, I think you were at a party or something talking to a lady who was talking about Satan. Uh, it was about Satan and Christ. And yeah, she was my cousin's midwife. And he didn't want to talk to her because she, he's like, she's always talking about Satan. Can you talk to her? And we had this discussion. I don't know if you want to get into it, but she was talking about Christ. 
And I was talking about the Lord. And what I was able to do was to think of as an archetypal structure that's present in all different sort of interpretive belief systems. There is this functional structure, which we might refer to as the Lord, which could be Shiva, could be Kali, could be any of these things. And I had to do that translation. But when I did that translation, I could speak to her and say the Lord. And I absolutely had integrity in that statement. And also she could tell me things about Jesus. <laughs> And it would make sense and teach me something new about my understanding of what this archetype was. That's such a beautiful example. So what I think of that as, as you kind of had your own inner titanium man implicitly of Lord, Satan, etc. Right. And, and, and understood it at a very different level than how she understood it. But because you understood it in a way where you genuinely vibed with it, that helped you create a coherent connection with her. If we don't do that, and, and my understanding of that is how she kind of understands it, maybe in a more kind of literalistic or fundamentalistic way, I'm going to have an allergic reaction to her and be like, get the hell away from me, right? I'm not a religious fundamentalist. So I think that titanium man is helpful because the more we're able to upregulate these ideas in our own minds and genuinely appreciate them and genuinely vibe with them, that makes it easier for us to connect with other people that where we might be totally allergic to them and disagree with them at the level that they're articulating the idea, if that makes sense. Yeah, you know, for me, I think a lot of this is personal character, but also a lot of it I get out of Nietzsche, right? He has some fascinating things. He says at one point, like, look, if the mating instinct of animals was able to upregulate to the point where it's what we call love, then what other base things could we upregulate? What would happen if you did to cruelty what we did to the mating instinct? Where would we get? What if you spiritualized or just added numerous layers of emergent complexity and refinement to any one of these things, you wouldn't take too many of them to get something that you think is fantastic. <laughs> right, right. I, I feel like, you know, this process has always been going on, right? I mean, we have Westboro Baptist Church understanding of Christianity, and we have, uh, what was his name, Paul Smith's integral Christianity, right, with Luke Healy, right? So it's like, we have the full spectrum. And I think, I think theology is one field where there's always wars over the interpretation of the Bible or the texts or, or whatever, right? We can have a Islamic terrorist understanding of jihad, and we can have a Sufi mystic understanding of jihad. It becomes very dubious about whether Christianity or Islam is a category at that point. <laughs> right, right. And there's not only a kind of a horizontal uh, culture war between different you know, religious or ideological camps, but a developmental war within the same school of thought. Yeah, there's a beautiful book that uh, Deleuze wrote called Nietzsche and Philosophy, where in one of the chapters he says, the thing Nietzsche brought in was a shift from the old philosophical question of what is it to the question of which one is it? And I think that's the beginning of an organized integral take, because we're like, hey, there's all these different ones. So when you say that, which one? Which one are you talking about? You haven't told us just by using the word. Is that a first person amber level Christianity or is that a seventh level third person Christianity? We don't know what you're talking about yet. Explain which one it is first. Or I maybe I have to do that myself and we can get a good conversation going. But I'd like to um, touch on a few things that I've heard you say in a number of interviews that I loved. One of them is this phrase, the race to the bottom of the brainstem, which is very evocative and very fun. Uh, is that your own phrase? Did you get it somewhere? And, and what do you consider it to mean? I heard it from Terry Patton, actually. Mm. It was from Terry Patton's Rebel Wisdom interview, I think. 
And it's basically, you know, we have this whole race to the bottom phenomena, right, where the competitive dynamics between firms or institutions or agents in the system create a kind of downward spiral that creates negative externalities that damage something else in the commons, right? So the race to the bottom of the brainstem refers to the kind of game theoretic attention economy dynamics that lead to media outlets, social media and, um, you know, mainstream media or, or uh, legacy media going for the most polarizing inflammatory stuff as a way to get people's attention so they can stay in business and outcompete other outlets in the attention economy. And that creates the race to the bottom of the brain right where everyone's trying to amygdala hijack you with the most outrageous headlines and material so that they can get your attention and that, you know, emotional upset and, and anger can overpower subtler, more nuanced, more diaphanous feelings. And then, then you are able to stay in business. Uh, did you want to add something here, Bruce? Yeah, I've had, you know, a number of things popping in my mind as I've been listening to you, but now I'm not sure which one to, to settle in on. I just finished editing our uh, conversation with uh, Greg Henriquez. And in there, I talked about uh, Bohm's use of the RIA mode and where he takes a word and then he kind of like unpacks it in different ways and shows different levels of the process um, and, and revitalizes the language that way. And you, Layman, commented then that you saw that as basically an exemplar of a process that goes on, you know, in the complexification of thought and, you know, developmental movements in cognition. So I think also that that play with language probably plays very well into, you know, what Ryan is talking about with, um, Titanium Man, and even possibly with Vajra Man, in the sense that sometimes language play can also be a, a state-shifting, you know, factor. That language used in certain ways can not only give you new insights, but actually help shift states. There's a nosemic quality to to language that I think that we, you know, probably could get better at. Some some artists are really good at that, um, and and I think it, it's a skill to cultivate. Yeah, I think that leads uh, right back to where I wanted to go. You know, because in terms of getting the semantic structures to uh, richly reflect the reality structures to the point where they can generate an integrative surplus. Uh, that means you've got to get these balances just right in terms of their nuance, their detail. And that brings me to asking about something else I've heard Ryan say a few times, which is the relationship between hypocognition and hypercognition. Right. So like how, you know, how well, what is the balance? What is a mutually catalyzing, richer lived experience of how we use our memes relative to our experience? Like, where are we? Where do we have insufficient memes for our experience and where do we have insufficient experience for our memes? Yeah, great question. And this is this is definitely not my area of expertise, but something I'm, I've been interested in, right, where there's a whole idea of uh, epistemic injustice from a feminist theorist named Miranda Fricker, who I heard from uh, from complexity theorist Dave Snowden. And, and she's been influential in his work. And so basically the idea of epistemic injustice is that a certain culture lacks a word to describe a certain pattern of oppression, 
uh, that's called, she actually called that specifically hermeneutic injustice, right? We don't have any kind of uh, cognitive interpretive mechanism to see that aspect of reality. So the, her, the canonical example is something like sexual harassment is not a word in a lot of developing countries or even, uh, you know, um, prior to like the 50s and 60s in America. And so women can be sexually harassed and there might be a kind of internalized trauma or pattern of experience that that engenders, but we don't have any ways of capturing that experience or sense-making around it because we don't have a word for it. And so that would be a problem of hypocognition. We don't have a word for something. And then it basically becomes a kind of hermeneutic injustice in society at large, right? There's another great example from Robert Levy's anthropological adventures in the Pacific Islands. Are you familiar with this? Where he went there and um, saw that, I think it was a Tahitians or some Pacific Island tribe didn't have a word for grief, right? And so uh, what happened, something tragic would happen to them and then they would not be able to process that feeling of grief, which is kind of, I guess, a deeper human, you know, emotion or experience. And because they didn't have a word for that, they couldn't process it themselves and the culture couldn't process that as a community. There was no ritual to try to help people in their grieving process. And so they would basically say things like, I feel sick or I don't feel well, and then they would commit suicide. And he knows there was a very high suicide rate in the community. So helping them to create a word and therefore a cultural meaning structure around grief helped them to process it when they were in a state of grief and then lead to healthier mental outcomes, right? So I think, so that's kind of why, that's kind of how hypocognition can be bad. Hypercognition is kind of what's similarly to what psychologists like Jonathan Haidt call concept creep, right? Where you have so many concepts and so many distinctions, you can kind of uh, distort your experience in a way. It becomes kind of neurotic, right? There's a kind of left brain, right brain um, dynamic here too, right? Who, who is that guy, uh, master and his emissary guy? McGilchrist. McGilchrist, right. So McGilchrist also says, which is really similar to this in my opinion, right? He says, if you go too much in the left brain, you get neurosis. If you go too much to the right brain, you get psychosis. So hypercognition is a kind of a neurotic form of over-conceptualizing of reality and kind of suffocating your sense-making and conscious experience with too many distinctions. And you become kind of neurotic, right? Like you can kind of, one example is like the problem of specialization. Where people get so specialized, you have so many you know terms to make to make these hair-splitting distinctions. You kind of drown in concepts. People like Jonathan Haidt use it more to criticize. I think kind of like the woke or kind of the social justice stuff happening on college campuses, where students are taught all these words, but you're taught all the 100 billion ways that you could be harmed, and then you're more likely to feel harmed. Mm. So to me, the more interesting philosophical question underpinning this is: to what degree does one's ideological and mimetic a constellation of thought patterns structure your subjective lived phenomenological experience. And I feel like that's not something really being talked about uh, in a lot of social justice circles where we talk a lot about people's lived experience. But to what degree uh, is your lived experience influenced by the interpretive schemas you're running, right? So two people might have a very similar experience, but interpret them completely differently after the fact because they have different ideologies through which they frame the experience and, and that can lead to adverse or beneficial outcomes. Yeah, it's absolutely um, understudied and under assimilated. And I think the people that do touch on it do it in a very clumsy way, which is they start to just feel like all of my reality is just whatever was programmed into my software by the words that I use. 
Uh, maybe, you know, that was kind of a strong late 20th century attitude that comes on the back of just having invented computers. So yeah, that's an exciting way to think. We're just programmed by our linguistic software. But I think we do need to study that, but we need to study it with an alignment towards the value we're trying to find, right? That we want, we want the optimal way of getting our languaging and memes to resonate with our experience such and understanding how they mutually influence each other in order to get a certain kind of coherence or harmony out of that rather than just thinking oh my god uh the magic spell of words is creating everything that that doesn't get us any higher harmony so we have to keep higher harmony in the frame as the the telos of the critique uh, but I'd like to double back to um, some personal things, some podcast things. You know, a few years ago, uh, at Bruce's encouragement, I agreed to give a talk called What the Fuck is Meta Theory at the Integral Theory Conference in 2015. And I had three rules for myself at the conference. It was run everywhere, drink everything, hug everyone. And so in one of the buildings at the Sonoma University, there was this huge flight of stairs and I would be running up and down this flight of stairs constantly, full energy. And at the bottom of this flight of stairs was a little cluster of couches. I sat there, had a great conversation with Don Beck one day, but there was a guy who was always sitting on these couches on his laptop and it was Jeremy Johnson. That's how I met him. And uh, I'm curious you know, how you met him and what your impressions of him were and why you thought, hey, I can collaborate with this guy. I can do a project. I can co-host things. I can work with this guy. What was it about him that made you feel like, yeah, yeah, this will work? It's really funny because I actually met him, um, I think it was in 2019, through that community I had started from Talking with Teal, interviewed him on Talking with Teal. And he was really bringing in this Gebserian perspective. I didn't know anything about Gebser. And some people in the community were a little annoyed by him because we were all hardcore Wilburites and who the hell is this guy bringing in Gebser and kind of uh, critiquing Wilbur from a Gebserian perspective, right? And so uh, I, I um, got his book, uh, Seeing Through the World. <clears throat> I read it. And then what I wanted to do was have a debate with him where I would advocate for a Wilburian perspective and he would advocate for a Gebserian perspective and we'd see what happened. And so I I ordered Everpresent Origin and 15 pages in, I was completely converted to Gebser. <laughs> and and I was like, oh my God, this is this is just amazing. You know, this is blowing my mind. And um what I really appreciate about Jeremy is his he has a very beautiful kind of aesthetic and poetic way of describing the phenomenology and phenomenological reality of integrality. And uh, he does it in a very embodied way where he's really able to, I feel, embody kind of the spirit of what Gebser meant by the integral structure and then kind of transmit that to you, uh, kind of Vajraman style, right? Um, and, and that's something that's really uh, informed my thinking, right? And, and actually now I've kind of, I realized too that, you know, Gebser's perspective is, at least in the way that I'm downloading it, still just another kind of heuristic <laughs> to understand reality. So I'm not as much of a Gebserian as he is or as I much as I was in 2019 when I read EPO, but it still very much informed my thinking and really cautioned about the, the problems of over-metatheorizing, right? The problems of hypercognition and being lost in abstractions that dissociate you from lived phenomenological presence. 
Um, and that's and that's something I tend to really fall into being a very mentally rationally oriented person. I very much dissociate from my body and somatic reality. So Gebser was a great reminder to try to stay balanced in that way and not get too sucked into abstract meta theorizing. Nice. I just was going to say I thought you emphasized that point well in your yeah humorous um meta ideological Chad article where you really said, you know, it's not enough to stay up there mentally masturbating in your ivory tower, though it does sound nice, but um, it's not enough. You've really got to get down there and do stuff. And that really means mixing with different groups of people. And one thing I thought about that, you know, I, there's something, are you familiar with Castaneda when he talks about kind of the process of losing your form? Um, and, and Don Juan and Castaneda talk about losing your form, but one of the practices that Don Juan gave to Carlos was to basically put on a different identity and then go into groups of people that you know and don't let them recognize you. Really embody a different way of being to a degree that you can show up with a different affect, a different style, a different set of values, a different way of engaging and actually enter convincingly into that space. And he gave him assignments to go into these different groups and just try that on as an exercise in shifting the fluidity of his ability to to enter different mimetic spaces, but also to have a, a, a more fluid and flexible uh, self fitting for a Nagual, you know. And so I think that's, you know, that it's a nice uh, consonance there with what you're talking about. That's absolutely fascinating. Um, he was kind of the OG mimetic infiltrator Kind of sounds to me almost a variation of you know the ideological Turing test, uh, where you can articulate a, a perspective or position with such you know kind of uh, convincing authority and clarity and understanding, you know, steel man understanding of it that people in that tribe really believe, think that you believe that or hold that position yourself. So it is a practice in that kind of mimetic and perspectival fluidity and getting feedback from people on whether you're passing the test or not. So yeah, I'll have to look into that, Bruce. Thanks for sharing that. There's a real spiritual utility in uh, separating yourself from the roles that you're playing and your tendency to get identified. You know, one of the things that came up at the integral stage second anniversary party was a hunger from some of the people to hear more difficult discussions. And I, um, you know, so there's a question around what does that mean? There's a question around how do we take the risk that's necessary to take? personally, internally, in order to get to that uh, edge that makes a conversation difficult. Um, two styles present themselves right away, you know, because we're doing an integral stage, there's a notion of, hey, well, we're going to bring in a much wider range of people from that meta space and all these communities, or even like that conversation I moderated about panarchy and metamodern progressivism. Let's see how intense and how divergent the perspectives within this space of discussion could be. But then there's the sense of what about relating outside that discussion that you and Damiano have done these sort of, uh, hey, let's talk to flat earthers or, right? So there's these two zones. One is how divergent, how difficult a conversation can we have that's legitimate within the meta space? And then how do we handle the difficult encounters between the meta space and other spaces? And if we were going to set up some project, you know, which one's the most important one to work on? Which set of skills should we be digging into here? 
Oh man, that's uh, that's rough. That's <laughs> I, I'm I'm so passionate about both of them. You know, I think that you know within the meta space, I I'd like to, and I'm also curious when other you say other people had a hunger for difficult conversations, what their real desire was for that. So for me personally, it's really because there are a lot of topics that were kind of black box because they're difficult to talk about or people are, you get the sense, especially in communities like the Stoa, where I think a lot of people are really sick from all of the cultural division. And so they're trying to rise above that and just focus on other topics that are more spiritually nourishing, right? Uh, group practices, philosophies, Stoic practices, you know, meditation practices, that kind of thing. Um, and for me, that's not totally satisfying because I came from that world where I grew up in a Buddhist temple in Hawaii. So I kind of came from that very spiritual reality and I'm trying to get more politically engaged. And so for me, I, I like to see more tensions being explored so that we can develop a kind of more, you know, complex forms of sense making around these topics. You know, I was saying to Evan McMullen, I had a great talk with him for two hours the other day about how it's, I think for a lot of people in the, the meta communities, if we look at it from a lines of intelligence perspective, right? Our line of intelligence when talking about religion, spirituality, philosophy, all this stuff is like really high and beautiful and, and diaphanous. And then when we talk about other polarizing issues, it kind of lags behind, right? And if we don't, I, I gave this model to Evan and he said, it's more holistic than that, where you're only as strong as your weakest link to some degree, where if your sense making is stuck at a, at a kind of more crude level around a certain topic, that's gonna influence everything else that you think about, right? So how do we get all of them up here? And to me, the way is dialogue about difficult topics, emphasizing convergent, or I'm sorry, divergent perspectives, right? I think for the Damiano project thing, that I think is a, just a very practical skill that I think is just helpful to develop and kind of, to me, emotionally, there's a desire to get out of the bubble, right? To, to say, okay, how, we have all these really amazing ecology of theories and, and theorists in the meta communities, how do we really take this out into the world? And really, you know, for me, it's all about transforming Portland, right? Kind of the epicenter of the culture wars where Proud Boys and Antifa are clashing on the streets. Knowing about mimetic mediation, knowing about integral theory and how to work with different worldviews and metamodernism and all this stuff. How do I actually go and make practical, real change in my community, right? What are the leverage points to really transform the system and com local community that I'm in instead of just retreating into the online space with all my wonderful friends like you guys and just saying, fuck Portland, you know, I'm, not, I'm just going to dissociate from my local environment. So to me, um, I joined a whole. I joined like a very conservative uh, Christian Bible study group. I joined a Catholic worker group. I joined you know a bunch of anti-racist activist groups. I I talked to a whole bunch of people from QAnon. Uh, I tried joining Antifa and the Proud Boys, but they never responded to my email, so that was disappointing to me. Uh, but just to try to really immerse myself in another memetic ecosystem, see what makes them tick, and also really see kind of if the system failed someone. I want to see how and why that happened and how that could be fixed. And this one example, I was watching, uh, I can't remember her name, but she was a filmmaker who went and talked to a whole bunch of white supremacists. Um, she was interviewed on Sam Harris's podcast and she was talking to the, the head of some like white nationalist group in the US, his headquarters are in Detroit. And she said, why are your headquarters in Detroit? And he said, well, with all of the unemployment and outsourcing of jobs, that's created a lot of you know, emotional despondency. And that's a great place to recruit people to a white supremacist group, right? So when people are depressed because they don't have a job, you don't have a community, you don't have an identity, you don't feel good about yourself, you're more susceptible to, to joining a, a kind of a hateful or destructive ideolo ideological group, right? So knowing that to me is really helpful because 
then I don't have to go and talk to all these people like Daryl Davis, even though I love what Daryl Davis does. But we can fix these on a systemic uh, level and, and actually at a, at a scalable level um, so that people who do fall into kind of bad patterns of, of thinking and, and you know advocacy can actually have a better way forward, prevent that from happening in the first place. Yeah. I mean, you asked what did these people mean when they advocated for more difficult conversations? And I have three guesses. Um, I would say part of it is, is the black box thing in a way that these are people who have feelings and insights that they think are pretty good, pretty competent, pretty non-problematic and pretty interesting. And they feel like there's whole conversation zones they can't enter into. And they, they have an instinct that this is something you could really work with that could grow that intelligence in multiple aspects of ourselves. And they're not seeing any examples of people entering that conversation space and refining those particular qualities that they can see are there and really never get to interact with or enrich. So that's one. I think another one is just human nature to want something exciting. You know, there's the race to the bottom of the brainstem. But why can't we take that same impulse for things to be exciting and conflict oriented and have that divert up the brainstem, right? But it's not good enough to have boring analyses of what the world looks like from a higher perspective. It's got to be fun. It's got to be sexy. It's got to be kind of violent. It's got to be, you know, a little bit transgressive or whatever it takes for people to click in because that's what we're like as beings. And then the third thing I think is probably a lot of people are looking for tools they could apply in their lives, right? They're running into conversations at work, at home, online, and they know something's wrong. There's some really limiting thing about the context from which the discussion is occurring, and they don't know what to say. They just wish they had an answer for all these people who seem to them to be completely missing the point <laughs> or ruining a potentially amazing conversation. Yeah, I'll, just, I'll say briefly that I think the number two is also an important point because I, you know, my elephant in the brain moment is, yeah, I'd like a little bit more of a, a exciting kind of a, not necessarily a blood sport, like a gladiatorial, you know, fight, but something, you know, some, some format, some platform where we can, you know, experience deep disagreement. I love your facilitation of the Brent Cooper, Brian O'Doherty debate. Um, you know, there were some rough patches at some points, but I think that, I, you know, I appreciate both of their willingness to show up and hash it out for over two hours. And I thought you did a great job of mediating that. So I'd love to see more of that. I know there were some debates, you know, with like David Long and other people on like metaphysical topics. That's not my jam, right? I'd rather talk about really juicy cultural issues. But um, yeah, just I, I just love to see more of that and help develop that in any way that I could. The original tagline for the integral stage was the Centaurian arena. And I don't really like that that much, but the idea there was second tier space where there could be some kind of Dharma combat and, and, and that kind of thing taking place. Uh, for me, moving out of Erpes and into this space, I was afraid of bringing too much of that energy right into the genesis of the integral stage. And thinking it could get derailed quickly and get very messy. But I do feel now that we've been able to kind of build up a feeling for, for what this space is and, and, and what the, the thought currents are and, and what the values are, that we could begin to risk more um, and, and not throw the whole project off. So, you know, I, I really have valued your thought and your experiments, you know, Ryan and also Damiano and, and your dialogical 
ventures. And uh, yeah, I think, you know, open to your feedback and input and participation and in, in how we might do some of this going forward. Yeah, absolutely. I, I feel like we're, I mean, we're obviously coming toward the end of this conversation, but there's a moment here to try to envision what we would like this to be. Ryan touched on that a little bit. You know, Bruce, you're saying there's an opening here. Uh, I think that's true. I can't remember what phrase I used earlier. Oh, meta, meta perspectival Thunderdome. <laughs> Dharma combat's a great idea, but like from your point of view, Ryan, what would you, what would you love to see in those terms, right? If we set up some subset of the integral stage devoted to this kind of thing, how do you envision that? What would make it awesome? What would, what would make it be the series of your dreams? Great, great question. I, I'm visualizing a kind of diversity of formats because if you get too specific you, you with how a dialogue or debate should go, you'll select out a lot of voices that would otherwise participate, right? So I think there could be a space for just like, you know, let it rip, right? If you want to look at the more kind of polarizing end of the spectrum, I think the Brent-Brian debate was a good example of two very, very different perspectives and different kind of communication styles going head to head. And I think there could also be slightly more structured forms of, of dialogue where the goals were made more explicit or some of the methods really did contain a consciously developmental component. Um, one of the ideas I had, for example, was to use kind of the lines of development as a way to scale where someone stands on every issue, right? So before you enter a conversation on a scale of one to 10, one being like nothing and 10 being the highest, right? how strongly how emotionally attached are you to the subject how you know how much how with how much confidence do you believe that your perspective is superior what are some of your how uncertain are you about certain parts of it take the numbers have the discussion and at the at the end of the discussion reassessing the numbers and see where people shifted and what in the dialogue prompted that shift so it could have been hey before i was convinced that uh, universal basic income i was 10 thinking that it was good but after talking to you and hearing your perspective i'm down to an eight right you said you made some really good points that made me kind of think critically and reconsider where i stand on this topic and having the number system can help to pinpoint that exactly and kind of quantify that in a way that can be fruitful for people outside of the debate to look at as well as for the person participating in it. So, you know, just tinkering with different kind of formats and methods. Yeah. And I think it could be a, a really interesting. Yeah, I think you're, I mean, the different kinds of man that you've got, those could be specific to particular instances, right? Like let's do a polarity man discussion. Let's do a titanium man discussion around this topic with these people. Um, my take and you know it runs up against because i you know i want to have a good time i want to <laughs> everybody I interview with we should get along we should vibe together it's it's a good interview for me if there's some kind of nice resonance at the end uh but at the same time i understand i feel that i've got to be taking more risks that i've got to go a little bit further into the firing line to activate the flare-up energy that is actually between the different perspectives and uh, so I'm trying to figure out how to do that in a way that's still graceful and funny and respectful as much as it can. But I think there's a there's a courage element that we have to bring forward. There's a flexible format element we have to bring forward. There's some different specific uh, conversational methodologies, such as you've been working on, that we might need to implement. I'm not sure what this thing looks like, but I, I'm excited that there could be meta perspective thunderdome <laughs> and that everybody could be 
everybody who wanted to could get excited by it and also appreciate what its potential is. Wonderful. I, I just want to comment really quickly that to Bruce that what you had said, Bruce, about not coming out the gates with the integral stage with too much of that energy. I think that's a really smart idea because there is a kind of a founder effect or you know path dependent sensitivity to initial conditions, and if it gets off rolling from you know too much of that kind of that kind of a vibe, right, that can create its own feedback loop in which the integral stage would go in a very different direction than the direction it's gone. But now that we've kind of shored up. Right. What this is, you can start bringing in slightly riskier conversations. As you don't want to hear me to. saying the N word on day one. <laughs> Maybe day two. <laughs> <laughs> well, happy for you to debut that on my uh, my my uh, podcast right. with you. <laughs> Guilt by association. That's right. <laughs> I'm tainted. I just happen to think you nig very well, Layman. <laughs> Uh, is there anything else we want to cover? Anything else on your mind, Ryan, that uh, we haven't asked you about? No, I mean, all I'll say is, you know, in terms of entering into the trenches, entering into the fiery line with you guys, I'm happy to do that as a moderator or as a participant. Uh, happy to talk about anything to anyone, um, even if we want to start off some debates and I can be someone, you know, in the debate to kind of maybe model some of the techniques I use or just have me help facilitate and moderate it and kind of fuck around with it and, and mess up and then improve it and have everyone see that process, I think I would be down for any of those. So really great to talk to both of you today. And uh, yeah, looking forward to what we can come up with. Yeah, I uh, actually thought about having you as a debate participant so that you could coach us through some of the methodologies as well. We just need to find somebody who could uh, do that in a way that would present an actual kind of tension with your perspective. Uh, but that would be a great way to experimentally start some kind of difficult decision, pro difficult discussion project. And yeah, happy to work with you. I really like you. I really like what you're doing. And I think both of us would love to collaborate more on the parallels between post-metaphysical spirituality and the politics thing. That would be awesome. And I'll just say really quickly, too, that I am going to be starting a new podcast with uh, my friend Nate Kaufman on um meta ideological politics and we'd love to have a kind of starting symposium or gathering of thinkers to kind of share what their vision is and i'd love to hear of both of how from both of you how uh, you know integral post-metaphysical spirituality can be used as a kind of philosophical and spiritual basis for what we're trying to do so we look forward to that collaboration i'm in fantastic <laughs> well, awesome. thanks so much yeah great talking with ryan glad you were here bruce Fantastic all around. We're amazing. <laughs> yes, we are. <laughs> Thank you, guys. Cheers.